I'm going to read you another psalm before we get started, and this will be Psalm number 45. This is to the chief musician, set to the lilies, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and with your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory places by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich people among the rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore the people shall praise you forever and ever. All right, we're going to read our sermon text for today. I'm going to read you uh, Genesis 41, verses 46 through 57. And today's sermon is entitled, Prosperity and Famine. This is uh, Genesis 41, verse uh, Genesis 41, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which were in the land of Egypt, and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, the, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil in my father's house, all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt, ended, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Joseph, then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all lands. 
In his word, God uses agricultural themes to teach us spiritual applications, and there are thousands of them. They're used consistently, and they're used openly to teach us moral lessons, to teach us prophetic lessons, life lessons, and spiritual lessons, pictures of Christ. Today's passage is one of those. There is abundance, and there is famine. There is grain, and there is need. There is the wisdom of God, and there is the lack of foresight in man. Now, God isn't lording these stories over us to show us how stupid we are. That's not the intent of this. It's to show us his wisdom will increase our knowledge and it will protect our path. He's given us the most wonderful treasure in his superior word. As I said, each of these agricultural themes is used to teach us a spiritual truth. And a perfect one is Jesus standing up in John chapter 6 and saying, I am the bread of life. Right before that, he just got done feeding 5,000 with just five barley loaves and two small fish. After the meal, they picked up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Now, the people may not have known that, but the apostles, the disciples certainly did. They saw what had happened. And then after this occurred, the people came looking for more, and they came looking for a sign as well so that they could believe in him. Here's the exchange. It says, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, Give us this bread always. It was right at this point that he told them that he was the bread of life. Earthly bread does not satisfy. Only Christ can do that. And we can only find Christ in his word. And yet we trade it for flashy presentations, exciting Sunday mornings, and lives that are filled with misery. It simply isn't worth it. God's word is a very hard study. But that which is of highest value rarely comes easy. Our text verse today comes from Job chapter 23. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. We read words right here like those of Job. We listen to sermons about them and we often go right on with life without letting those words sink in. Job said that he treasured the word of the Lord's mouth more than his necessary food. We eat three times a day, and the next day we get up and what? We're hungry. How can we expect to be filled with God's word without consuming it just as often? We can't. So please, if nothing else that you take from the next hour of your life as you sit and listen, please take this admonition from me right now. Read your Bible. It is God's superior word. And so, may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Now, I have three individual thoughts for you today. The first is verses 46 through 49. It is an abundance of grain. This is verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph's age is given here at the start of his rule for a few reasons. I tried to think of all the reasons why would God include this. First, it gives us a reference for how long he was in slavery. He was sold off to Egypt when he was 17 years old, and so now we know that he remained a slave and a prisoner 
for 13 years. <clears throat> Next, it provides the details concerning his life and how long he will be in this position because the death, uh, his age at his death is recorded as 110 years. And so he will hold this position of authority for 80 years. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, this gives us, believe it or not, the dating from the creation of the world. Joseph was born in the year 2259 Anno Mundi, or from the creation of the world. This is 30 years later, and so now it is the year 2289 Anno Mundi. It is about 1,700 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. And finally, his age is given to show us a parallel between him in his exalted position and that of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In Luke 3.23, we read these words. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. Exactly the same terminology. Now, I want to uh, stop there and I want to let you know this guy was in prison for 13 years in order to make a prophetic picture of Jesus and to give us all of these other things. And you have to wonder to yourself, why would God not just send Joseph down there and he's in Potiphar's house and he does a great job, give Potiphar a dream and then... Uh, Pharaoh has his dreams, and so he goes right to being the ruler of Egypt. Then you, you, you think, why didn't God do that? Why did he let him go through 13 years of suffering? Well, there's a couple of reasons. I, one of the things that came to mind is that he's only 17 years old. And so is he going to be looked at as reliable if he gets you know 19 years old and he gives this dream and he goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, thank you, and he sends him back to work in Potiphar's house? And another thing that I am absolutely certain of is something that every one of us can apply to our own life is that he was being matured for this job. In other words, he's in the guy's house and he's empathetic with other slaves that are in the house. He goes to prison and therefore he's empathetic with the people that are in the prison. These rulers from Pharaoh's house come and they uh, uh, give him a dream and he sees how they deal with him because they go back and they forget about him. Actually, one of them does. The other one gets uh, hung. But he's learning things as he goes. So those 13 miserable years of his life are actually there to help him as he is ready to move into his duties as the leader or the ruler under Pharaoh in Egypt. And the point that I'm making is that this applies to you as well. Because every one of us here has something that we're looking forward to. And God is using that development process in you. It may be painful, it may be long, it may be whatever. We've got a couple young children in here today and they may say, well, I want to do this and I want to do that, but their parents will say, you're not ready for that. You need to mature and you need to develop in that respect. And that happens all the way through our life. It's not just something that happens right now, but it happens even until our 60s or 70s and our 80s, that God will deal with us according to his wisdom. And when those things are supposed to happen, they will. I'll give you one more example and then I'll move on. And I've used them several times in my sermons is my friends over here that went to uh, Japan as missionaries. And they were already much older in their life and yet they did that. But God used them at that age in their life because they had all of these experiences that they, that they could relay to other people that maybe they couldn't have relayed to them if they were younger. They'd say, how, how would they have that life application? But they did. And they were able to bring people to Christ while they were there. And they were able to do things that somebody younger could not do. So keep those things in mind as far as Joseph is that he was going through a maturing process. And each and every one of us is going through it at some stage and in some way at all times in our life. So be patient and wait on the Lord. 
Now, at this age, 30 years old, it says he stood before Pharaoh. This is a way of saying that he had been granted access right into the presence of the royal throne. Only the highest officials of the land could actually come and stand before Pharaoh. And so this implies that he is in such a position. We saw it last week. It's confirmed in this verse here. And verse 46 does continue. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. In this high position, he now has access not only to stand before the throne, but he can go out from the presence of Pharaoh as well. And with this authority, we're told that he went out throughout all the land of Egypt. He was the ruler of the land and the one to monitor everything that would occur in that land. He is granted complete and unhindered access wherever he wishes to go. Verse 47, now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. The Hebrew, and you wouldn't get this, most translations don't say it, but the Hebrew literally says it brought forth by abundant handfuls. This is a way of saying that either a single stock produced as many ears as a person could hold in one hand, or the grain from one stock would fill the hand. Either way, the reapers would simply grasp the ear and they'd cut that and they wouldn't bother with the stock at all. It is an immense harvest, which is being spoken of and described right here. The ground brought forth abundantly to the reaper's cheers. So much grain, such a bountiful harvest. This, this continued on for seven blessed years. Such were the crops, as the Bible does attest. Verse 48. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which were in the land of Egypt, and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. All of the food mentioned is the one-fifth that he had counseled Pharaoh to collect. That's what it's talking about. That one-fifth was gathered up over the seven plentiful years, and it was stored in the granaries, which had been constructed exactly for this purpose. Every major city had granaries, which held a surplus from all of the surrounding fields. And eventually, the amount stored was so immense that it was beyond description, as we're going to see right now. Verse 49, Joseph gathered very much grain, as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting it, for it was immeasurable. Now, I was curious, I just, I've seen this term a couple times, and I was curious, how many times is the term the sand of the sea mentioned in the Bible? It's mentioned almost 20 times, and it is the Bible's expressive way of mentioning an uncountable number, just as it would be impossible to go and count all of the grains of the sand out at Turtle Beach, so was the abundance of the harvest stored up by Joseph. There was so much that he eventually had the bean counters of uh, the time just stop making records of what was brought in. The Hebrew says that he left numbering because there was no number. It became a futile endeavor to even bother trying to uh, count the surplus. There came a point when it was evidently enough to take care of any contingency that was expected to arise. And we have to remind ourselves, though, that it was God that said that this would happen. And that it was God who brought the flooding waters down into the Nile Delta. And it will be God who stops the floods in the time to come. By using the weather, which is coming from the upper Nile to control the river, and the weather in the lower Nile, the heat in the wind which is expected, there's going to be an immense famine which is coming. And all of it has the single ultimate purpose of leading to Jesus through one single and select group of people whom he has chosen. If you think it through from this perspective, it shows you how immensely important the redemption of man must be to God. 
every drop of rainfall and every gust of wind has been perfectly arranged to get the world to Jesus. And so what do you suppose is the depth of the heart of God towards us that we should call on Jesus? In the Psalms, David asked a question. He said, what is man that you were mindful of him? And I gave an example in our Bible study today, and I'm going to give it to you right now as well. On the astronomy picture of the day, some of you may go to that. I go to it every single morning before I turn on my email and I see whatever astronomy picture they have. And they'll show a picture of nebula or galaxies or maybe something within our own atmosphere that they take a picture of. And today's was unique. They post it about once a year. It starts with man, a picture of a man. And it says this is the scale that they're basing it on. And then you take your mouse and you make one click on your mouse and it goes out to a scale of 10. And all of a sudden you have the Eiffel Tower and man looks real small next to it. And you click out again, a scale of 10. And it says this is the size of Vatican City and you can't even see man anymore, he's so small. And then you click out again and it says this is the size of Rhode Island and Vatican City is real small. And you click out again and you can click out about 25 or so times and it goes out to the, uh, the planets and then to the solar system. And then all of a sudden it goes out to suns that are so big that our sun isn't even compared. You can't even see our sun next to it. And then it goes out to, you know, the, the size of a galaxy and then out to the size of maybe a, a nebula and then a galaxy. And then it'll go out to something called some field. I don't remember what it was called. And eventually it gets out to what they say is the known universe. And man is so far forgotten from that, that it, it, we are absolutely insignificant, absolutely insignificant to the size of what God has created. And then you click back down and you get to man and it allows you now to click the other direction. So you take your mouse and you click the other way and it starts going down inside to a cell. And the next thing is so small that a cell is, is immense compared to it. And then it goes down further and further to quarks and planks and things that we can only speculate about. And what I said in the Bible study, and I want to repeat to you now, is that from the universe all the way down to the very smallest thing is the most marvelous intricacy. It is absolutely astonishing how everything is so beautifully woven together from the mind of God. And David's question becomes all the more relevant when you think of that perspective, this giant universe, and then this teeny little thing, and everything is harmoniously put together by this wise creator. David says, what is man that you are mindful of him? He's got all of this stuff to think about, and he makes this weather to lead to Jesus. And it's not just one isolated weather event, it's an entire history of time. So it's not just size, it's also time. Everything is brought into the equation for the purpose of the redemption of man. It's unbelievable. When you consider the amount of time and the incredible care that it took to bring the world to Jesus, and equally the same amount of time that God spent writing the word of God, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and men writing this word, being compiled into this beautiful treasure for us. And in that thought then, there is a parallel to the seven years of abundance and the seven years of famine in Egypt to that of the world at the end times. In the book of Amos, the Lord speaks about the wickedness of Israel, which will lead to a famine. In his words, he speaks of the swelling and the subsiding of the river of Egypt the Nile. So what he's doing is he's taking the story of Joseph and he's now going to make a spiritual application that none of us should miss. Let me read you this from Amos 8 and listen very carefully. 
Shall not the land tremble for this, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it shall swell like the river, he even subside like the river of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts in the morning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son and its end like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. As the end times approach, and I assure you that they are approaching, there is an abundance of the word like at no other time in human history. The Bible is preached on the TV. The Bible is preached on the radio. It's preached on the internet. It can be accessed in innumerable sites, in a hundred different versions, and in a thousand different languages. Bibles and the instruction of God's word will continue to increase right up until the tribulation period, and then there will be a famine. And how's that going to happen? You know what? You think about it. We have hard copies of our Bible, but most people don't use those anymore. They carry iPads, and this is my access to the Bible, and all it'll take is that quick, and it's gone. If you don't have a copy of the word, either here or in your hand, it will be gone from your life. Any mention of the truth is going to vanish. We don't need to guess if this is going to happen. I assure you, it will happen. And this is certainly what's being pictured in the grain of Egypt. Throughout the Bible, God, his word is considered our food. Without food, we are going to die. That's just the way it works. And without the Bible, we are as good as dead. The Bible tells us of Jesus, and without him, there is no hope. One plus one is two. No Bible, no Jesus equals no hope. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. It will be severe wherever man does trod. The people will suffer for what lacks in their hand. It will not be a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Masses of humanity will remain forever dead because of the lack of my superior word. The abundance of the last seven years before the rapture will be all but forgotten when the tribulation and the great day of the Lord comes. Our second thought today, verses 50 through 52, the sons of Joseph. Now, this is going to be a little bit complicated. I want you to know that in advance. I said this to Paul on Thursday. This will be on the video. And I'll also have these notes, as I say them to you, I put them on the internet, and you can go there and you can read this if you don't follow, because this is so interesting to me. It's so deep and so interesting, but it's a bit complicated. So try to grab what I'm saying to you. Verse 50, And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenat, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Here again in this verse, like last week, we have a picture of Christ. Last week, it's kind of a repetition of a verse we saw last week. Joseph becomes a blessing to the Gentiles as leader of Egypt and the one to save them from the affliction to come. And at the same time, he obtains a Gentile wife. Likewise, Jesus has blessed the Gentiles and in him, in them, he has secured a Gentile bride. It's called the church. To this wife, two sons are born. However, and you would not get this in the English, the verb for born is singular. It's not plural. And so it's possible, and it's actually likely, that they were twins. 
in this verse is a multi-leveled play on words. Joseph's name, and because Joseph is in this verse and he's going to be listed along with these two sons, we have to take his name into account to understand what God is trying to tell us. His name means he shall add. In essence, he is the repeater or he is the doubler. He was born to Rachel, who was the long barren wife of Jacob. Eventually, to her was born a second son, who was Benjamin, thus doubling in picture and in type Jesus, because uh, both of them, Joseph and Benjamin, are going to represent Jesus. Joseph already does. Benjamin will. They'll both represent Jesus. However, Joseph is also the doubler in his own children by having two, thus picturing Jesus, who is the Lord of Jew and Gentile. Now, you wonder how I came to that conclusion. I assure you, I will show you before we get done today. And finally, Joseph has been chosen as the ruler of Egypt, but he also marries into the priesthood of Egypt, thus doubling the authority in his home. He pictures Jesus as the king and the priest of his people. He is the priest on his throne, which is seen in type in Zechariah chapter 6, and it's seen explained in Hebrews chapter 1 or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 8, starting in the first verse. So these explain Jesus in type and then in fulfillment. Verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. The firstborn child is named Manasseh, and the explanation is given right in this verse. It says, for God has made me forget. Manasseh comes from a verb which is nasha. It means to forget. But again, there is a multi-level play on words in the naming of this boy in this verse. What seems simple becomes amazingly deep. Unlike most of the sons of Israel, Joseph was named based on two words, not on one. Joseph's name comes from Yosef, which I just explained means he shall add. But it's also based on the word asaf, which means to take away. And we're going to see this in a sec. I'll, I'll read it to you. Now, Manasseh is exactly the same. In Hebrew, and thus in the Bible, to forget something doesn't mean like we think in English. What we do is something slips from our memory. It's passive. It fades away. The, the Bible's idea of forgetting is active. It's not passive. It is the active taking away of something. And so Joseph, who was named from the word asaf, which means to take away, is himself taking away a memory. And so you understand this. I want you to think of the times in the Bible when God says he will forget our sins. God doesn't forget anything. And so that He act, it means that he actively takes away the memory of our sins. And when he remembers somebody, it doesn't mean that he ever forgot them, but that he is now drawing them near to himself to help them in some way. And this is exactly what we see in the naming of Joseph back in Genesis chapter 30. And this I want to read you and explain it to you. Then God remembered Rachel. He never forgot Rachel, but he's actively drawing her close. And God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach, which is the naming of Joseph, Asaph. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add Yosef, that second word, he shall add to me another son. Joseph named his son Manasseh because he forgot, even though he hasn't really forgotten. The word play on his name is that he forgot by taking away. 
Now, having said that about Joseph, the naming of Manasseh takes on a new turn. Nasha, which I just told you means to forget, also means from a debt. The Bible's concept of a debt is different than we handle a debt today. In the Bible, when something is lent out, it is pushed out of the mind. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6 to explain what I'm trying to tell you. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High God, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. The idea is that only a person who is in need would ask for a loan, and so the loan should be forgotten. If the debt is repaid, then it's brought back to mind. If it isn't, it is to be water under the bridge and it's to be forgotten. And so as much as the name Manasseh means to forget, it also means from a debt. And I'm going to clear all this up, so don't be confused right now. Verse 52, and the name of the second son he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Again, wordplay comes into this picture on several levels. Joseph's name means he shall add. He's the repeater. He's the doubler. He's the increaser. He has a second son, and so his name is fulfilled in this second son, just as in the first. This time, the son is named Ephraim. So you got to see that Joseph's name is just as important in this account as the naming of his sons. Ephraim means double fruitful or twice fruitful. But again, there's another connection to his name, which is the word for ashes. Ashes are emblematic of grief or sorrow, especially for judgment on sin, such as when Abraham said these words. Now, you need to remember, Abraham was uh, with the Lord. The Lord's going to go down and destroy uh, Sodom. And Abraham starts bargaining with the Lord. What if there's 50 people? What if there's 40 people? What if there's, you know, he goes through these numbers and he gets them down to 10 and he says, I am but dust and ashes. Let me ask one more time. And the reason why he said this, he meant that a man is made from the dust, but he's one that is deserving of the judgment of being reduced to ashes. And so the double play on this name is that Joseph is doubly fruitful in the land of his affliction, but he remained filled with grief over being separated from his father and his home in the land of his affliction. Abarim, who I go to from time to time to read their commentary, says this very beautifully. Here's what they say about Joseph. Joseph is behind the golden bars. He's standing there with hands on golden bars behind a still dismal cage. He's forgotten his family, but he hasn't forgotten his family. In the case of the ruler of the greatest land on earth, he was still mournful, and he's flipping his coin from side to side. He's going from joy to grief as each moment passed. And after the family is finally united, we're going to read this in Genesis chapter 48. Then Israel, this is his father, coming to bless his two sons. Okay? He stretched out his right hand, and he laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger. And he took his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Jacob is going to adopt these sons as his own, but he will place Ephraim above Manasseh. 
again, as happens throughout the Bible, the second is placed above the first. We've seen it at least 10 times already, thus picturing the work of Christ replacing the work of or the deeds of Adam. And by knowing this, the naming of the sons and the wordplay involved in those names will now make all the sense in the world. Manasseh means to forget, but it also means from a debt. He pictures Adam, who is the man who owes a debt, which he cannot pay. And that debt is forgotten in Christ. Ephraim means twice fruitful, but it also means ashes. He pictures Jesus. He is twice fruitful in the land of his affliction. He left heaven, he comes down to the earth, the land of his affliction. He prevailed over the law, and thus he became the savior of both Jew and Gentile. But it meant also that through his work, sin was judged in him, thus the ashes, hence the land of his affliction. It's astonishing how everything, even the simple naming of these boys, when combined with Joseph, shows us Jesus Christ. If nothing else, God is continually bringing us back to the cross of Christ on our behalf. If there is no other thing that we can get from these many stories in Genesis, we cannot miss this fact. It is all about Jesus. He removes our sin, he forgives our debt, and he has been doubly prosperous through his own affliction. All of those names tie into that one sentence. This ties in exactly with what Isaiah says in chapter 40, which is the great turning point of the book of Isaiah. Here's what he says. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In Christ, there is double comfort. There is full pardon of iniquity and complete payment for sin, even double so. The warfare is ended. Our third thought today, this is verses 53 through 57. It's famine in the earth. Verse 53, then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt, ended. Seven years of plenty was all they had to get ready and prepare for what was ahead. If the stores were mishandled or if Joseph was negligent in his duties, then everyone below him would suffer. The book of Proverbs says this, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. If we don't prepare for the inevitable, then when it inevitably comes, we will inevitably be found wanting. The famine was foretold and its coming was inevitable. Our death is coming and nothing short of the rapture itself will stand in its way. And the rapture is meant for those who have prepared in advance. In other words, be prepared. When Solomon says for you to save an inheritance for your children's children, he was certainly, there's no doubt about it, he's speaking of worldly wealth. It would be unwise to not save for your children's children. But what was he doing? He was building on a spiritual precept which was already found in scripture. In Exodus chapter 34, the Lord makes this great per pronouncement to uh, Moses. And in this pronouncement, we read this. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. David was aware of this precept and he put it in the positive 
when he wrote this in the 103rd Psalm. Remember, David is Solomon's father. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and those who remember his commandments to do them. And so the spiritual picture of the seven years of famine in Egypt, that of the abundance of the word of God in the world, now comes to an end. From this point on, the word of God will not come abundantly, nor will it come freely. It will cost, and for some, I am certain, I'm speaking of the future now, it will cost them everything. Verse 54, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine began right on schedule according to the dreams of Pharaoh and according to the interpretation of Joseph. Joseph has proven himself to be a prophet of God, seeing beyond what could have otherwise been expected. To guess a few bumper years of crops, and anybody can do that. Ah, we're going to have great crops for a couple years. That's imaginable. But to guess exactly seven years of bumper crops followed by seven miserable years could only be revealed by God. And so we see here the prophet, the priest, and the king represented here in Joseph, thus picturing Jesus Christ. Verse 54 continues, The famine was in all lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. In all lands means that it was an immense and a wide-ranging famine. Twice in Genesis there have been localized uh, famines in the land of Canaan, and there's food remaining available in Egypt. But this time the famine encompasses the entire region. Only Egypt has food, and it's only because they prepared in advance. This type of famine is so severe that people will stoop to the lowest imaginable levels to survive. I'm going to give you an example right from history itself. A.D. 1071, it shows a famine in Egypt that was so severe that the records state that they ate the corpses of people and of animals. A dog, a scrawny little dog, was sold for five dinars, a cat for three dinars, and a bushel of wheat sold for 20 dinars. It was a lot of money back then. In Deuteronomy 28, under the blessings and the curses that the uh, people of Israel could expect as they followed or as they failed to follow the Lord, these words of horror, and I mean it sincerely, and of famine are recorded. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 28. You shall eat the fruit of your own body. That means your children. The flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemies shall distress you. The sensitive and very refined man among you will be hostile towards his brother, toward the wife of his bosom, and toward the rest of his children whom he leaves behind, so that he will not give any of them of the flesh of his children whom he will eat, because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemies shall distress you at your gates. And I got to tell you what, this is all fulfilled right in the Bible. In the book of Lamentations, if you go to the book of Kings, there's a lady that comes to the king and she says, O king, I have a complaint against my neighbor. And he says, what's the matter? He says, well, we agreed to eat our children. So we cooked my son, we ate him, and now she won't give up her, her son. So this is reality. This is what happens during a time of famine. And I want to tell you that the words that I just read you from Deuteronomy 28 continue on for a couple verses, and it describes something so horrifying that I'm not going to read it to you. You're going to have to go and read it yourself. Someday I will preach on it, and I'll read it. But it is shocking what people will do during a time of famine. But we have to remember this. The cruelty is not because of the Lord. It's the self-inflicted wounds of man. The Lord makes his offer of peace and man runs from it. 
Someday, there will be no more running and the famine of Egypt is going to be realized on a global scale. The self-inflicted wounds of the race of humanity who has turned so far from Christ that there's simply no remedy left. The cross teaches us, and I mean if nothing else, we talk about the cross in a million different contexts, but if nothing else, the cross teaches us that God does not tolerate sin and that it will be punished. And that sin has only one of two places to be punished. It will either be in Jesus as our substitute or we ourselves will face the wounds and the horror because we willingly turned from that offer. If it sounds terrible, it is. But now, right now, is the time of God's favor and today is the day of salvation. One thing that we will see in heaven is those wounds in Jesus' hands. When he was resurrected, he came and he showed them to his disciples and his apostles. And there's no reason to believe that we won't see him in heaven itself. And those hands are open and they are waiting right now for us to choose. So each one of us must choose wisely. Verse 55, so when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Now, I am not a survivalist. Anybody that knows me, I live day to day almost. But if I was a survivalist, other than guns and ammo, which I think is a pretty good investment, though I, I would invest in one other thing and it would not be gold or silver. I'll tell you that right now. I wouldn't bother. You read the book of Lamentations and some of the other places in the Bible, the gold, the silver, and the gems are all scattered at the head of the street. They're going to do nothing when that time comes. I would be investing in food and food that can be uh, eaten cold and food that will last a long time, kind of like military rations. In the storehouses in Egypt, the grain would last. The climate was dry and they're in the storehouses and so they would have been kept from, kept from spoiling and getting mold and everything on them. And there are people all over the country who have years and years of food saved up for just in case. And Mormons are famous for this and they should be saving up because I got to tell you what, I do not believe that Mormons are saved. They believe a theology which is corrupted. And unfortunately, they're going to have to face the tribulation. So their saving of uh, uh, grain is probably a good idea for them. But I know a Christian lady here in Sarasota that could probably feed an entire army for seven years with what she has in her house. And she's going to be gone at the rapture if it comes first. Now, we may go through some trials before that, so she may be wise in what she's doing. The fact is, though, that if the wheels of the economy stopped today... Every store in America would be empty in two days, and there would be utter chaos in three days. In the 1920s, during the Great Depression, about 80% of the people in America lived in the country, and 20% lived in the city. And that has all but reversed since then. We have set ourselves up for trouble that will be unimaginable. The people of Egypt cried to Pharaoh because the bread was scarce. Imagine now the spiritual side of this. Remember, the grain is actually picturing the word of God. How are people going to cry to the Lord when they realize that they were wrong about Jesus? Can you imagine that? The same cries that we need food, we need Jesus. It's too late. The calls for the word of God during the famine are going to be many. In the 119th Psalm, it says this. It says, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. We should store up the word just as we store up food. If bread which satisfies for a single day is important, and it is, how much more is God's manna, which was sent from heaven, the living word, Jesus? And we cannot feast on that bread of life unless we have a full supply of that bread. The book is written and it satisfies fully. Oh, precious bread of life, Jesus, my Lord, 
How I cherish knowing you more and more each day. Then this blessing comes from knowing your word. The Bible is my daily meal, which my hunger, it does allay. If you spend your time in the word now, there'll be no need to call out during the tough times without it. You will have it. It will be hidden right in your heart and it will fill you anytime you need it. Verse 55 continues. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do. Pharaoh, the great house, gives his instruction. Go to Joseph and whatever he says to you, that's the thing that I want you to do. These words are repeated by a woman who understood who her son really was. In John chapter 2, we read this account. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Guess what? Mom felt differently. His mom, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Pharaoh, picturing the house of God, tells us what to do. Go to Jesus and whatever he says to you, do it. The picture tells us the message and the message is very clear. We're not going to be fed by Allah. We're not going to be fed by Buddha. We're not going to be fed by Krishna. God is not confused. I have a friend on her Facebook profile. She says, all paths lead to God. And I got to tell you what, Muslims say that God has no son. It's the greatest blasphemy in uh, Islam is to say that God has a partner, meaning a son. It's called the sin of shirk. And Christianity says that God has a son and he's the only way to get to God. God isn't confused. Either one is true and the other is false or both are false, but both cannot be true. And this goes with every religion on earth because every religion on earth contradicts Christianity. So I, I have to tell you, stand on your Bible. Be firm in the truth of God. Pay attention. The famine, uh, verse 56, was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. There are different thoughts on the world of the tribulation period. And I want you to know this. Some people say that if you have heard of Jesus and did not receive him before the rapture, you cannot be saved. Personally, I believe that that is shallow and it's vindictive. And God is neither. I want to remind every person here that John 3.16 does not say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him before the rapture shall not perish but have everlasting life. No, it does not say that. But it also warns us that we have to be prepared now. Anyone who feels that they have time, and I can call on Jesus later, may get squashed by a car today. And anybody that thinks that they can enter the tribulation period and be a hero and a martyr for Jesus... I got to tell you what, I know people that have said that to me. That's a fool. The famine will be severe, even in the land where they have now realized that Jesus is Lord and he's their ruler. How much more in a land where they don't have that? Verse 57, our final verse of the day. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. With the famine in all the earth and with Joseph in charge of the food for all of the people, the name that he was given that we saw last week, Zaphnath-Paaneah, is fully realized. He has become, in his own day, the savior of the world. All countries of the earth came to Joseph for grain, and since the coming of Jesus Christ, all countries of the earth have streamed to him for this precious bread of life. 
The patterns are plain and they are wonderful. And the pictures tell us the story of Christ to come. Each word drips with hints of his glory and of his work. The message is always about Jesus, either looking forward to him or picturing him or both. Man's redemption is tied up in this one man who came to pay our debt and which he will then forget, represented by Manasseh. And then he became doubly fruitful, saving both Jew and Gentile, represented by Ephraim. But Ephraim gives us a deeper taste of Christ who bore our judgment. We are but dust and we are deserving of being reduced to ashes, and yet he took our judgment upon himself. The cross of Jesus Christ is the hinge on which all of history rotates. It opens heaven's door and it also shuts the door of heaven. It is open now through his blood for each person who hears and believes the message. So I would ask if you have never done it to come through that door while there is still time. When that door shuts, your heartbeat stops and you get put in the grave, it will be too late. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we sin. And the Bible also says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Because we've all sinned, we all die. One plus one equals two. And then, of course, as I say week after week, that beautiful three-letter word, Mm. but, but, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He offers us what we do not deserve. We've sinned, we have earned death, and yet he says, I will give you eternal life through my son, Jesus Christ. Very, very simple thing to do, and yet it's the most difficult thing on earth to do. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You got to take all of your pride and all of your self-deeds and say they're insufficient. I cannot save myself, and I want Jesus to do it for me. That's all you need to do. It's a hard thing to do, but it's simple. So you have to decide, am I going to take the root and I'm going to call on Jesus or I'm going to come to God with all of the things that I've done and say, here, look at what I've done because it's insufficient. Call on Jesus, be reconciled to God the Father and he will save you and you will have eternal light in his presence. And think of what I told you about the universe clicking out to something so big that we're just a little afterthought and clicking down to something so small that's so marvelous, and everything is working according to God's plan, and yet out of all this perfection, he allows us to make the choice. And all of that that he's done has been for this sole purpose of getting us back to him so that he can be glorified through all eternity. It's astonishing. What is man that you are mindful of him? I don't know, but God does, and he loves you that much. Our closing verse today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And remember, Jesus, he himself said, the scripture testifies to me. If man lives by every word of God and every word of God testifies of Jesus, it's all about Jesus. Okay, call on Jesus. Next week is Genesis 42, verses 1 through 17. It's called the giver of grain. What do you think that's about? Somebody doling out doling out the bread. It's our 104th Genesis sermon. I'll remind you, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. 
Today's uh, poem is entitled, The Government Upon His Shoulder. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Certainly things were looking good. And we are told that Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh to all the land of Egypt. He went throughout, through the broad avenues and side streets so narrow. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. In Egypt, there were many cheers. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which were in, the la- in Egypt the land, and laid up the food in the cities, in storehouses ever so grand. He laid up the food of the fields, which surrounded them in every city, and he did it, believe it or not, without a congressional committee. Joseph gathered very much grain, as the sand of the sea it was stored, until he stopped counting so much they did obtain, for it was immeasurable, a vastly immense hoard. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came. She, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore, to them, bore them to him, and Asenath was her name. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil in all my father's house, as if the payment of an immense debt. In the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me fruitful to be. In the land of my affliction, like a dream, he has multiplied me most abundantly. Then then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt, ended. Then the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, the abundance was no longer extended. The famine was in all lands. It It quickly spread, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Joseph said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do as he said. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, sustaining them through the dearth. Then the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. Things had turned austere. So in all countries, they came to Joseph. In Egypt, they came to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all lands, the famine which God did foreordain. We need bread to eat lest we waste away, but there is a greater need than bread from the field. We have the need for Jesus, the bread of life, who through him our heavenly destiny is sealed. God sent his son to feed us by giving us his life there upon the rugged cross of Calvary, and through his blood ends our enmity and strife. Peace with God, golden streets will trod, fellowship, communion, and the light of eternal glory. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, I, I want to thank you especially today for the naming of Ephraim and Manasseh, a couple verses that I've read 50 times and I never realized until this sermon was put together the intricacy of what you have shown us, the glorious, marvelous working of Christ once again. Everything keeps pointing to him and it's just the most wonderful thing to know that we're on the right track and that we're proclaiming Jesus Christ, and that maybe someday some someone will click onto this video and hear something that will convert them to a right understanding of who you are and that he needs Jesus. Whatever it is, Lord, I thank you that we have the opportunity to look into these things. And I thank you for the fellowship you've given us in this church. I thank you for the people that have come and have brought the donuts that we're about to partake of and uh, have come for the fellowship and for the music and for everything that uh, we enjoy each Sunday. And we want to praise you for those things. And I'd like to pray for each person here individually that the 
struggles in their heart and the trials that they're facing, whether it's emotional or physical or financial needs, whatever they are, that you would be with them. Help them through it and help them to remember that as you lead them through it, to turn around and to praise you and to thank you because you are so worthy of it. And sometimes we forget when the good times come. So help us to do that. Help us to glorify you. And above all, help us to do it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.